Mic check. Mic check, mic check. Can you guys hear me or can you be louder? A little louder, right? Yeah, louder. Is that better? Is that better? What about now? What about now? No? Is, that, is that good? Is that fine? Sure? Mm -hmm. You know, like this, and can you tell me when to stop? No, okay. That's another one. Um, All right, let's open up in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this, for, this, uh, for this new day, Lord, that we're able to come together as the body of Christ and worship you and labor for you, Lord, and, and love you. We pray, Father, that this uh, moment of studying your word may be a moment in laboring in love. In your name we pray and we give you thanks. Amen. So... You know, it's, it's the new year, and, and I was looking through some uh, New Year resolutions. A lot of times pastors will always, like in their, you know, new, their New Year resolution sermon, they'll talk about resolutions, right? So how many of you guys have made a resolution? Yeah. No? No one, no one here made a New Year's resolution? I find that hard to believe. You probably don't want to raise your hand because you stop doing it after a week, right? So you got one person. I hope a lot of your resolutions were to not lie. Because you already, you already broke it. No, I'm just kidding. So, so anyways, I was, I was looking through some resolutions, and, you know, it was pretty interesting. Uh, I was looking at, like, the percentages, you know, of what people's resolutions are, and it's, it's above the number 100 because people make multiple resolutions. But I was looking through the list, and self-improvement or education-related resolutions, it was basically number one. It made up usually 47% of these resolutions. Weight-related resolutions, second, 38%. Money-related resolutions was 34%. And relationship-related resolutions was 31%. And the reason why I was looking at that is because I was thinking, you know, that a lot of times when people make resolutions, it's always to do something, right? Um, and in terms of our sermon, it's hardly ever just to rest, right? I mean, you start the new year, and you're thinking, like, this year I'm going to do this and this and this. I mean, you're thinking, like, you know, i got to get off running. What am I going to do this year? What work am I going to execute? And then when I was looking at the top 10 New Year's resolutions for 2014, I'm going to read through them. If you've ever made this resolution, I just want you to raise your hand, right? So the first resolution was to lose weight. Okay, okay, maybe you don't want to raise your hand, right? I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Uh, getting organized, right? Anyone ever make that? Okay. Uh, spend less, save more, right? Uh, I like how it's the young people that are like raising their hands, right? Staying fit and healthy. Learning something exciting. Learning something exciting. Right. Quit smoking. Help others in their dreams. I like this one. Number eight. Help others in their dreams. And then it's interesting. This is number nine and number ten. Number nine is fall in love, as if you could like make that happen, right? <laughs> I'm gonna do it this year. I'm gonna make someone fall in love with me, right? And then number 10 was to spend more time with the family. That's kind of sad that that's like number 10, right? But anyways, what was interesting about that is the fourth largest percentage was relationship-related. And as we're going to see in this sermon, we're going to talk about working and we're going to talk about rest. And we're also going to explore the Sabbath um, in, light, in light of those two concepts. And it's just interesting because rest doesn't really fit in this picture. Americans don't start the year asking the question, I'm going to rest like I've never rested before, right? So the central truth of the sermon, and you'll, you'll see, whenever I start preaching, I'm always going to give you something called the CTS and the CTT. The CTS is the central truth of the sermon. That's what the sermon intends to do. It's kind of like the cliff notes. So you can hear what the CTS is and the CTT, and then you can go to sleep. So if I ever ask you what was the sermon about, you can just pull that up, and I'd be like, wow, really impressive. But today's central truth of the sermon is that today we will learn where to find rest. That's a pretty simple concept. We'll learn where to find rest. Um, as for just a quick review, the last sermon I preached, it was called The Darkness, The Light, and The Life. Does anyone remember where we started with that sermon? Where does the light start in the Bible? It started in Genesis. And it was kind of like a tongue-in-cheek thing because I was like, let's start at the beginning. And we went to Genesis, but then I kind of tricked everyone at the end because I was like, no, no, no. The real beginning really starts in John 1 because it starts with the you know, pre-existing, eternal um, Son of God. And basically what we, what we did in that sermon is we just looked at the uh, birth of Christ, you know, the birth of the Son of God you know, into the world as the most amazing event in all history. That was that Christmas sermon. And we started in Genesis and we started in creation. 
And today we're going to actually start again in Genesis. I always love when I find these little things, like when I prepare a sermon. And then I always go back and say, what was the sermon I preached before that? And I'm like, oh, I started in Genesis 1-1, and then this sermon actually starts in Genesis 2. It's pretty cool. And this is the passage, if you want to read along with me, Genesis 2, 1-3. It reads as follows. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. By the seventh day, God completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from his work of creation. The central truth of the text is that Moses wrote Genesis 2, 1 through 3 in order to identify God's completion of creation and mark this seventh day as his blessed and holy resting place. So, you know, this is always like, you, know, behind, you guys like behind the scenes stuff? And that's why they put those things in DVDs. You know, you can go see like the behind the scenes stuff. I love the behind scenes stuff. So I, I always like to just throw in the behind the scenes stuff when it comes to sermons, like sermon crafting, because I think it's just the coolest thing ever. All right, so I'm, I'm thinking, what am I going to preach on this week? And I have no idea why, but I'm like, the Sabbath. I'm going to preach on the Sabbath, but that's just what came to me. I'm like, okay, let's preach on the Sabbath. So then I'm driving, and I'm driving to work, and all of a sudden I see this sign, and the sign says 24 slash 6. And that's the name of this sermon, 24 slash 6. And I look at the sign, and I'm like, that's kind of interesting, right? And then, I'm, and then my semester starts next week. So you know, I think I, I'm just a tiny bit qualified to preach on work because, like, as you can ask anyone, I'm always working. I, got, I wake up at 4 a.m., and from 4 a.m. to 8, I'm studying, and then I drop the wife and the kids off, kid off, and then I go to work for 8 hours, and then I come home and I pick them up, and then I cook dinner, and then I help with Lottie, and then I may study more, and then I go to bed. And then on the weekends, it's like sermon prep. So I'm working all the time. So right now, the semester's starting next week, and with like PhD, with like my PhD, I've got to read like 1,000 pages a week. So on my mind is work. Like, I've got to start working next week. The work's about to happen. Right? So I had all that in my experience, and then I'm at work, and I'm sitting at work, and then my boss's wife comes up to me, and she's just like, you know, she gave me this wonderful comment. She's just like, Glenn, I just want you to know, I, I mean, I am just so blessed by your, like, work demeanor, because I always get excited at work, you know, because I get these projects, and they're really, really fun, and they're really exciting, and I can't help myself. Like, I was in a, I was in a meeting with the lieutenant governor, and I was like, blah, 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 blah. and he just thought it was the funniest thing, but I get really excited about work. And then, to make it even crazier, I craft the sermon, and then, and then I, I'm sitting back there practicing my sermon, and Sister Sharon comes up to me, and Sister Sharon's like, yeah, you know, I've been reading through the Bible this week, and like, I don't know, but I wanted to like ask you about the Sabbath, right? Because I was like reading all this stuff, and I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. They were like stoning people in the Old Testament for the Sabbath. Oh my goodness, Sabbath is on a Saturday. Are we practicing the Sabbath? We're not practicing the Sabbath. We're going to get stoned, and we're not real Christians, right? I mean, she, she wasn't like that. But basically, she was like, man, I just really want to ask you about the Sabbath. I'm like, oh, well, you know, don't worry, because that's what the sermon's about, right? So that's really cool when all those things come together. And, and you'll see, I'll usually preach like two types of sermons. One sermon is we'll go to a text, and we will sit in that text, and we will go verse by verse, words by words, right? And we may just sit in that text. You're going to see a lot of that when we start this series. Uh, maybe it's going to be on Romans. We're going to start this series, and we're going to be going piece by piece. And then other sermons I preach, I'll go all over the place, right? But the reason I'm going, I'll find like a chair text, a launching pad, and then I'll just start going everywhere. And the reason why I do that is because, like, guys, I want you to see how, you know, they're not just like little tiny pieces that are not separated, but that you have one very, very big story. And it's interconnected and it's beautiful. And today's an example of one of that when it comes to the topic of the sermon. So I'm going to share with you guys my, my secret it's not going to be secret after the sermon, but I'm going to show you guys my secret of my work habit. Wow, everyone's like, yes, a practical sermon, right? Yeah, you've got to teach us how, like, how like, to be really organized or to make like, you know, calendars or charts or something like that. Well, I, I'm going to teach you guys my secret, my work secret, right? So let's, let's get analyzing uh, on, on how to do this work. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to dive into uh, Genesis chapter 2. Those first three verses, that's our launching text. It's gonna take, we're going to go through the whole Bible today, right? It's only going to be about 173 hours, but we're going to do it. Um, but let's start with verse 1. So the, uh, the first section of our sermon is called Work and Rest in the Garden. And our first point is God's work. 
The Bible opens up with God working. Genesis uh, 2, verse 1 reads as follows. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. So what's he describing? What was completed? What happened before in chapter 1? You guys know I'm always going to Genesis. I love Genesis. And by the way, I came to Genesis for this sermon, and I learned a whole bunch of new things, like always. But what did he complete? He completed creating. Right? He, he, he worked. He, he did what? He created in how many days? Six days, right? So go to the next slide. Completed. This is interesting. He, he, he creates in six days. I've said this before, but I thought I might as well just show it to you guys what it looks like. But basically, the first day God creates what um, you can see as the locations. The first three days are the locations. And then the last, um, the last three days, I say last with tongue-in-cheek, but the last three days are the inhabitants. So he creates the light and dark. He creates the sea and the sky. And he creates the fertile earth. And then on day four, he creates lights of day and night. And that dwells in light and dark. And then the, the fifth day, he creates the fish and the birds. And that dwells in the sea and the sky. And then the sixth day, he creates the land animals. And he creates humans. And where do they live? They live in the, in the earth. You know, that's even why on day three, he starts creating vegetation and stuff for them to eat. So you got like this kind of parallelism, and this is intentional because it's really going to help us understand when we get to something like the Sabbath. But we have that, but then we also have these things called refrains. A refrain is whenever like in, in a poem or in literature, you like repeat something over and over again to try to like tie it together, right? So things that are repeated, and you see this a lot in Hebrew poetry and Hebrew literature, what is repeated is every, t every day of creation, the first thing in chapter 1 that it will say in the verse is, and God said, let. So how's, how's God creating in Genesis 1? He's literally speaking creation into existence. And not only is he speaking, but he uses a word like let. Like, let there be, boom, and it happens. Let there be, boom, and it happens. And he does that for these days of creation. And then he ends each day with creation with something that initially confused me. He ends each day with, of creation by saying, and there was evening and there was morning in the second day. So for the, for the, uh, for the Hebrews, for them a day was like mor morning to morning. For us it's like midnight to midnight. But what he's saying there is basically all this stuff happened and then there was evening and then there was morning. So he's trying to give you like this idea here that there's these days, right? Days. There's these days go by. And now we get into verse 2 and verse 3 and verse 2. Two and verse three. Um, oh, actually, before before that, another another theme too. Another really interesting theme is after he creates each of these, what does he say? It was good, right? Now, what does he say when it's Friday? After Friday, he says what? Very good, right? Like everyone else, everyone else gets the Friday. And they're like Friday's very good because Friday leads to the the weekend. Well, God, God, God says Friday was very good too. But the reason he says it was very good on the sixth day is because he created who? Created, created man. And he didn't just let man come into creation. He gets very personal. He says, let us, let us. It's this very personal you know, creation. The image of God is there. And then he appoints this creation over everything he created. So then we get into verse 2 and 3. And it reads as follows. By the seventh day, God completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested and from his, uh, from his work of creation. What do we have here? I put things in, I, I capitalize things just to try to help them pop up so you can see kind of the repetition. But we got seventh day, seventh day. You know, work, work. Seventh day, rested, blessed, rested, work. So you have this repetition, and it's kind of odd because it breaks from the pattern. It breaks from these refrains. It breaks from how he's, how he's sculpting everything together. And then he comes and he says this. Now, you, have, you, ever, hear, you ever hear like, a, you know, I'll sometimes get into like these debates with um, agnostics or atheists. And, and the really bad ones will throw the silly things out like, you know, can God create a rock so heavy that he himself cannot lift? Or the comical version is, can God create a burrito so hot that he himself can't hold? Right? And, and, you know, they'll throw these things out. Um, but, but, but the idea there is they're trying to show like that God can't do something, that he's not, not omnipotent. Maybe somebody will look in this passage and be like, wait a minute, God needed to take a break, God needed to rest. It would seem a little odd, but there's a bigger idea here. 
in terms of his resting. And in, um, in, ancient, in, in ancient Near Eastern traditions, this, like, God and the language of resting has a lot to do with, uh, like, temple imagery. And that becomes a big image all throughout the Bible. But what we're, what we're seeing here is, well, what happened with each, each of those days, right? What was, God created the first three days, and those were what? Those were the locations. And then he created the, uh, the inhabitants. And then you get to the sixth day, and now you have dwelling language, living, you know, living here language. Like, this is where I dwell type language. And you have this discussion of holiness as if to say, like, yeah, there's no, there's no eighth day where God's like, yeah, I'm going to live here. No, it's, it's almost as if he's going to end it by saying, I created all this, and I put, I put man here in charge of this, and I'm going to be here now. You know, I'm going I'm to dwell, dwell here in my, in my grand infinity. So we have this language of rest. We have this language of God working. And as we're going to see, God's resting is going to become a real big idea. One, it's going to lead to the formulation of what, what is going to become the Sabbath, but then it's also going to lead into something really, really big, right? So then let's, let's skip ahead. We're going to look at verse 15 in chapter 2 of Genesis, and this section is called man's work. So we looked at God's work, we looked at God's rest, and now we're going to look at man's work. So Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. Do any of you guys have different words than work and watch over? What was it? Take care. care. What else? Tend. Tend. Okay, what else? Anything else? What? Dress it and keep it. What else? Keep it. Okay. So, So our Hebrew words here are abad and shamar. And the reason why that's interesting to work it and to watch over or whatever the phrases you have is those same two words are used to describe the task of the priest in the temple. The priests in the temple were supposed to abab and shamar. They were supposed to uh, tend you know, to the tabernacle. They were supposed to uh, guard it from people, you know, desecrating it. So when you read this from this, from, from this, um, from this uh, Judaic perspective, this Jewish perspective, what you're seeing here after the whole dwelling discussion, God dwelling, holiness, you're thinking. You're already thinking of you know temple imagery, especially if you're a Jew. And then now you get over here, and you and you see these words, work it and watch over. And you're thinking, oh, like Adam's a, Adam's like a, a priest here. He's giving him a priestly responsibility. And what do priests do? What are priests supposed to do? You know, oversee worship, right? Generate worship, oversee worship. Well, basically, God's creating Adam here to be a worshiper. And then we got, in addition to this, he's talking about, he blesses them to be fruitful and to multiply. So he says, be fruitful, multiply, you know, fill the earth and subdue it. So he's basically saying, fill the, fill the earth with worshipers and worship it. You know what I mean? Like, make it to worship. Right? Cultivate it. Keep it. Whether it's art or it's music or, you know, it's, it's architecture or, you know, building. Whatever it is, your work, right, that working is worship. So where do we find then man's rest? Where's man's rest? Where do you think he's resting? I mean, he's, yeah, he's resting in God's presence. He's been in rest this whole time. He hasn't had to worry about finding food or, you know, any, any of these things that we have to worry on a daily basis. Right? He doesn't have to worry about shelter. He doesn't have to worry about food. He doesn't have to worry about being protected from lions. God's just been providing for him. So he's been resting in the presence of God this entire time. And the reason I have man's rest question mark is because we see something happen in Genesis chapter 3, and that's the fall. Eve wanted to be like God. Adam goes and sins with her and eating the forbidden fruit. And then they get kicked out of the garden, kicked out of the presence, kicked out of the sanctuary. And this is the punishment. Interesting, this is the punishment that God gives them to Eve. This is uh, Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 and 19. To Eve, he says, he said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children in anguish. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. So what we see here is a result of the fall is, these, you know, is, is marital relationships that are in turmoil, that are in flux. Abusive husbands that are supposed to be uh, protecting and guarding her as part of the creation. And we also see the labor of actual childbearing. 
Now to the man, he said to Adam, because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. So, when we think of work or labor, I mean, this is usually the images that we think of. And it's interesting that when a woman is in labor, I mean, that word that we use, that word labor, I mean, and it's the most painful thing that I can't imagine because I'll never have to go through it and I haven't experienced it, but I've seen my wife go through it and I know that it's painful. But what's also really painful is, is working. I mean, sometimes this is hard. I know for like me, you know, there's just times where I'm like, man, this is super, super difficult. Like I've been doing this for five years now, nonstop, you know, 12 to 16 hour days. And there are times where it's just like, man, this is really, really hard. Not as hard as child labor, but it's hard. And now you can make a mistake if you read this and you think, okay, so God's punishment is that they have to work and that she has to have kids. Some of you guys may think that your jobs or your children are curses, but they're not, right? But working and laboring is not a bad thing because before the fall, God blesses humanity and he tells them be fruitful and multiply. He tells them to work, you know, to work and to keep, to cultivate so, so working in and of itself is a good thing. God says very good after he creates man and he gives them this task. And, and it's interesting with, with uh, childbearing, I mean, it's even more of a blessing because, because you only find like that, that blessing part there in like these two different sections. When, he, when he's telling, um, I think it's the birds, and man, he's saying be blessed. And then after he's like saying be blessed, he explains the blessing, which is childbearing, which is, I mean, the biggest blessing that humans can share is this conception of children. So the, the, the curse is not just having kids or, or working, but the, the labor and the turmoil that surrounds it. And one of the reasons God gives this punishment to Adam is because what was his sin? He was eating. And we have disobedience, but his sin had to do with eating, right? And because of that, he basically goes out and he says, you know, well, you know, you were, you, I gave you everything. You had all this provision. Now you're going to have to work for it. And you're actually going to have to till the very dirt that I made you out of for your food. And it's not going to be easy. Has anyone, ever, has anyone here ever done manual labor for a living? Right? It's, it's hard. That's, my dad did that his whole life. And, and I could tell that was hard. Because whenever he came home, he ate like six plates of food as if to replenish himself. So we get a little bit of a question mark here, and the reason why I put man's rest is because you're like, they get kicked out of the garden, that's where they had rest with God, well, where does man find his rest? And God is already brewing a plan that he's had in store for all of eternity uh, to correct this problem. So, you know, in terms of like my, my secret, right, to working hard, we'll give some examples that I don't think are like the, the answers, right? So the first, the first, uh, the first answer here. Um, you can flip it to the next image. So this right here, what you see here is this was uh, one of the business cards that I think I told this story before, but this is like a business card I got for free, like you could print it off of Vistaprint. And this is what I had when I was in uh, community college. So listen how suave I was. I used to carry around a, a uh, business card, because I didn't really have a business, that said like, you know, student at Miami-Dade College, Leonard Goanaga, and it had like, one of the clubs I was part of, right? And my, and my contact information. And the reason why I bring this up is because, you know, some people think like the key to good work is that you're always prepared, you train hard, you work hard, and it's gonna pay off. And, and, and why, why does that have to do with this card? Well, the very first day I met Katrina at this honors college party, as she was leaving, I was like, hey, let me give you my number, <laughs> right? And I, pulled, and I pulled this thing out, and you know what makes it even worse? When I look back on it, I actually sprayed these things with my cologne, right? So I sprayed these things with my cologne, and she actually would, she was like, wow. You know, she actually loved it. But the best part is as I was leaving, see this blue paper right here? I didn't show you the other picture, but if you were to flip that card around, you would see my best friend's signature and, and, his, and his contact information and his number. Because as she was walking out, he goes, oh, let me give you my number too, right? I'm like, what? Come on. 
And then as she's about to walk out the door, another one of my friends pulls out that piece of paper and says, oh, let me give you my number too. Right. Funny story, but the idea here is like, I, I, you know, I've always been prepared. Bam, have my cards in in case you never know when you make a contact and stuff like that. So, you know, maybe that people think, well, that's the key to like rest and working is you just got to always be prepared and you have to go after it. I say, no, that's not correct. There's something bigger than that. So in the next slide. So here you see Lottie and Lenny. And it looks like we're having a blast, and that's because we were. We were at Marbles, the kids' museum, and we were like uh, inside this part where like we're in this tree thing, and there's one tiny little window, and we're just in there playing in the dark. And then my wife goes and she takes a picture, and then this is like what you see as we're playing with the flash. And the reason why I put this picture in there is because maybe some people are like, and and this this one is actually to me more attractive. Some people are like, oh, the key to work is is play, right? And, and you'll hear when people say things like. Yeah, if, if you, know, you love your job, if, if you love going to work, that's the key. And I would still say, mm, that's closer to it, especially when it comes to kids, because like with kids, that's how they work. The way they work is they play. That's how they work, right? Um, before they, they, you know, they become more, de more depraved by society. But that's how they play. And I would still say, no, that really doesn't answer the question yet. It still doesn't get at the grasp of work. What, am I just playing? Is that just the meaning of work? And then we have one more here, right? And so does anyone recognize this place? Huh? It's Wake Med, okay? It's Wake Med. Who, who here works at Wake Med? No one? Okay, got one? But, but, but uh, so Wake Med, right, you see this right here? So, so I, was, I was one of the contractors that put all of those computers in, in the, like we did all of the nursing stations. You know, the little thingy that you push around and all the different nursing stations in every place. So from the emergency rooms, I was, sw I was swapping out computers that had blood in the fans um, to, to, you know, the, uh, the uh, what is it called, the place, the, tri the triad, or what is it, like the triage. The triage for the labor and delivery. So I'm there like, you know, putting these computers in, and I'm hearing women, ah! But it was, it was a remarkable journey because, like, because we start in every single section. So it's, like, super depressing because you're seeing all these people who are dying, and then you're in, like, the section of, you know, children who have fatal diseases. And then, and then we ended up in, um, in we, it's funny, we ended up in the place where the women go after the, the baby was born, which is serene and just the lights are low, and it was kind of magical. But the reason why I put this picture up and I have the word numbing is because I will always remember one of the cool things about that job was like I was like a fly on the wall. So I got to hear everything that the people were talking about. And 40% of them were Filipino. Well, I, I'm just, no, seriously, like 40% of them were Filipino. But, but there was this, there was this uh, group of nurses and I'm there in the station. And, and, you know, the day before I remembered that there was like a room with the patient stuff, whatever, the clipboard or whatever it is. And then I come back the next day and he's not there. The, the stuff's not there. And I'm in there installing the computers, and I hear, these, um, I hear these nurses talking. And they're talking like, oh, yeah, yeah, he died yesterday, you know. And, and they're just like oh, like, oh, good, you know, because that guy was like blah, 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 blah. I mean, not that direct. But the gist of it was basically like he was a real big problem case or something like that. So when he died and they got the room free, it was something like, oh, yeah, they're not going to put anyone in that room for a week. Or something like that. So basically, you know, this nurse was talking to this other nurse like, oh, my caseload's not going to be that bad because, you know, I'm not going to have to worry about this room. And, like, that was the conversation. And I'm sitting there just like, oh, man. You know, and this happens with a lot of people. I, I think it especially happens with people in the medical industry is, and be, because it's, it's your instincts. Your instincts basically start telling you you can't get too emotionally connected to these type of things because it hurts. But I'm just there and I'm like, man, that's not the right approach to work that she numbs herself to the difficulty of work, to that death, because that was someone made in the image of God. And every time someone made in the image of God passes away, it's a time of mourning because it reminds us of sin and depravity. It reminds us of the thorns and the thistles of the fields that we, that we till. And that kind of just undermined work in my, in my eyes. I didn't think like that was what work is supposed to, supposed to be. So some people just are like, no, you just got to numb yourself, and this is something that you just have to do. I think all three of those are poor examples of what work is intended to be, as we're going to see in, in Scripture. Uh, so I've had, a different, I've had a different approach, and we're going to get there. But before that, we're going to take this survey across, uh, across a couple sections of the text. The second part is called Work and Resting in the Wandering. And here, turn to Exodus 16. Okay? So 
So in Exodus 16, what's happening in Exodus 16? A couple of chapters prior, we had the whole episode with Moses and the Egyptians and those miracles. And basically, we have this amazing you know, uh, uh, story of Moses and the, and the Israelites getting out of slavery. God leads them out of slavery. Let my people go. Red Sea, all that stuff. And now they're wandering around in the wilderness. They're wandering, right? And as they're wandering here in chapter 16, they're hungry. And they're complaining that they're hungry. And this is what verse 23 says. Oh, well, before I say that. So they're complaining that they're hungry, and God basically says, listen, what I'm going to do for you guys is I'm going to make this stuff, like, come up. Like, imagine, like, frosted flakes growing from the ground, right? This, this sweet kind of flaky stuff, I guess, that's going to come every morning. It's going to be there, and you can, you can go in there every morning, and you can pick, right? You can pick as much as you can eat, but, no, but like, no more, because then it's going to go bad. And some people still don't listen, and they don't listen, and it grows like worms and stuff. So he says, do this. First five days, I want you to do this, just enough that you can eat. And everybody picked the, you know, people would pick this, this amount, and it would be just enough for them. And then on the sixth day, he told them, pick twice as, pick twice as, um, pick, you know, twice as much. You're going to have enough for today and for tomorrow. But tomorrow, I don't want you to do anything because it's the Sabbath. So here we get into this verse, verse 23 of chapter 16, and it reads as follows. This is Exodus 16, verse 23. He told them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil and set aside everything left over to be kept until morning. And then a, a little later on in verse 27 to 30, he says, Yet on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they did not find any. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and instructions? Understand that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he will give you two days' worth of bread. Each of you stay where you are. No one is to leave his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So now here we have an introduction of the institution of the Sabbath. God's saying, you know, I want you guys to rest on this seventh day. And even though he says that, you know, some of them still ignore him. Some of them still go out and try to get the food. And if you're reading Exodus, that's nothing new because all throughout their wandering period, they're grumbling and they're complaining. They grumble and they complain about being thirsty. God gives them water miraculously by throwing a log in bitter water. Right? He, he, they complain about being hungry and not having meat, and God provides them with the quails, and he provides them with the manna. Even after this, they complain again about being thirsty, and God just had supernaturally been taking care of them. Imagine, they're, they're the Israelites. He just delivered them from Egyptian, the, the Egyptian, Egyptian slavery, and they're complaining over and over and over and over and over again. And this is just one of the many examples. And here he gives them the command for the Sabbath, and they still disobey. And some of them even go as far as to say, and this is, this is important, some of them even go as far as to say, man, it was better when we were under the Egyptians because then at least you know, we could feed ourselves. Our kids are going to die. You know, use the kids. Our kids are going to die. At least under the Egyptians we could. And what we see there is like, they're like, well... God had, has been supernaturally providing for them, and they still would have preferred slavery to, you know, take care of themselves. And that's nothing new. It sounds exactly like Eve when Eve says that she wants to be like God. I mean, here we have the Israelites wandering, and they're doing the same exact thing. And the reason why is that, that story, Genesis 1-3, through is basically giving you the big picture of what you're going to read about in the rest of the Bible. And this pattern just repeats over and over and over again, and essentially what happens to them they wander for 40 years, and God doesn't let them go into the promised land. Right? He, he lets the, the next generation. So we have here uh, an important theme of repeated disobedience. The grumbling, the complaining, of them disobeying. And it's interesting because in Exodus 19, verse 6, he says this. This is right before he gives them the Ten Commandments, also known as the Decalogue, in chapter 20. He says... You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There again is that language of holy, intentional. To be a holy nation, and it doesn't say to have some priests, like they already had. You know, they had they're, they're having a priesthood around this time. But he's saying that they're going to be a nation of priests, all of them. 
And then in chapter 20, he gives them the Ten Commandments. I could preach a million sermons on the Ten Commandments. They're so amazing and rich and deep. But just to look at one of them in verse 8 of chapter 20, uh, the fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then it gets, it gets, uh, gets specific. So at this point, you're reading this, you're like, okay, so the rest that God had intended for man was that, you know, the seventh day, because God rested on the seventh day. So the seventh day, I'm not supposed to do anything. Or I'm not supposed to work. I'm supposed to rest, worship, enjoy God. Maybe you're thinking, oh, that, that's like Sunday. Sunday must be the Sabbath. But the problem is that Sunday is the first day of the week. I, I, like, I, I, it was funny because I was doing the sermon. I was like, oh, you know, when, usually when I think of the week, I think of work week. And then I think of the weekend. And I kind of just put Saturday and Sunday next to each other because they're the weekend. But what's interesting, and the reason why I'm preaching this sermon and the sermon came to me, is because with the new year and the topic of rest, I began thinking of Sunday and what Sunday is, is supposed to mean and, and, and signify. And it's interesting that Sunday is the first day of the week, and Saturday, it's the Sabbath, is the last day. So you can't make the mistake of saying, oh, Sunday is, Sunday is the Sabbath. So here, this is pretty serious. You got it in the Ten Commandments. It's a big deal. And after this, you got other places in, in Exodus where like, he begins to describe what the penalties are like for breaking uh, the Sabbath, and it's not good. You get stoned and stuff like that. So you're looking around, you're like, oh, man, are, are we obeying the Sabbath? If not, we're in, we're in pretty big trouble. And some people have, see, have seen that, and they came to the conviction, like Seventh-day Adventists, to basically make the statement, you're not the true church unless you worship on a Saturday. But then we have some hint of an answer in chapter 31 of Exodus. And, uh, and so we've seen that. The, we've seen the, the Sabbath as an institution comes the day of the manna. He institutes it. He makes it a custom, a pattern for them to repeat. And then he puts it in the Ten Commandments. Uh, he puts it in the Ten Commandments as the four in Exodus 20. And then in Exodus 31, we begin to get a picture of what the Sabbath is. And this is Exodus 31, verse 13. By the way, if I ever have a verse appear that isn't, um, like, like you go and you research Exodus 31, 13, and that's not what's up there. Just let me know after so I can make this correction. Um, but Exodus 31, 13 reads as follows. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbath. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. There's that word sanctify again. Basically what we have here. Is whenever God creates a, whenever God engages in a covenant with mankind, there's usually a sign. Does anyone remember what the sign with uh, with the covenant with Noah was? It was a rainbow. And you have these different signs. Well, what we see here is like for the delivery of the Israelites, his relationship with the Israelites. One of the signs is the Sabbath. So that's going to become informative later on. So in our next section, we basically, where we're at right now is we looked at creation, we looked at the days of creation, we looked at God's work, and we looked at his rest, and then we looked at man's work, and then we asked the question, well, where's man's rest? And we got to places like Exodus, where maybe we're saying, oh, well, then man's rest comes in like this Sabbath day, where we don't do anything, we rest from working. You know, for, for the Israelites, not even their livestock were allowed to, to work. Even their livestock got a break. Their slaves, their servants, their workers, they also got a break. The immigrants, they got a break. Everybody got a break on that seventh day. So, so at this point, you, maybe you're like, you read the Ten Commandments, you're like, well, we got to start doing this Sabbath thing. And now we're going to zoom forward, and we're going to look at what the gospel, the gospels and the gospel has to say about work and rest. And here, we're going to use Matthew 11, 28 through 30 to help us uh, in terms of summarizing how the gospels see work and rest. And you turn with me to Matthew chapter 11 verses 28 to 30. Something interesting happens in this text. I always love it when I do something like this. You know, I'm, I'm you know, doing my canonical research. I'm jumping here and there. I'm reading about something. And I'm like, oh, this is really, really good. And then I read what's right before it. And I'm like, oh man, that's even, that's, that's awesome. That really puts it in perspective. And this was one of those, one of those chapters because I, I, I was looking at Matthew 12 and then I looked at the end of Matthew 11, and this is what I find, and it reads as follows. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All of you take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. 
For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So here we have Jesus talking and he tells people to come to him. It's an invitation, an open invitation to come and to embrace him. And this is really interesting because in this section here, in this, in this um, uh, part, this part of the sermon, with other, with other places, we usually think in terms of work and, and rest. Like, that's how I thought in terms of the week. I got the work week, and then I got the weekend. Work, rest. And this is how humans think. Work, rest. If I just work enough, I can get rest. The more money I make, the more rest and vacations I can have. I mean, it's just the way that people think. And you see that all throughout the Old Testament. That type of attitude is pervasive when the Israelites are there saying things like, when we were in you know, Egypt, at least we can feed ourselves. But then we get here, and, and you know, Jesus, his teachings are just so remarkable. And this is just one of those that is just so stunningly beautiful because of the type of contradictions, especially when you are in this you know, Israelite framework that you have this vocabulary and what follows. And what do we have here? Well, basically, Jesus is telling people that if they're tired and if they're burdened, where are they to go for rest? They're to go to him. So think about this. Where they had their rest was the garden. And now Jesus is telling people that if they want rest, they have to come to him. And what's the image that he uses for rest? What's the image? You would think it's an egg, but it's not an egg, right? It's a yoke. Do you guys know what a yoke is? Okay, the reason it's called a yoke is because of what you see in an egg, right? How it's combined. But a yoke is a tool for what? It's a tool for farming. Now, it's not a surprise that he's using these type of images given Genesis chapter 3 and the punishment of man. And man's punishment is that he has to till the soil, till the very dirt that he was made out of to feed himself. And Jesus goes and he uses this image of the yoke. And it's funny because as I'm reading, the de- I, I just threw a definition in there. And the first definition I read is a wooden cross piece that is fastened over the necks of two animals. A wooden cross piece. I can't say that, that's, that he's intentionally saying something like that, but it's interesting. But, but the concept is what a yoke does is you take two animals together and you put this heavy wooden thing on them so that you can drag around whatever that thing is called, a plow, and then basically you can turn up the soil so you can get all the rocks out of it and you can soften it for planting. Because it's such hard work that you want the animals to do it. And then I was even thinking there like, Man, that really stinks for the animals because, like, can you imagine having that wooden thing on your neck? I didn't see many pictures with padding or anything like that, foam, or not even pieces of leather. It's just a piece of wood, and they're just dragging that thing through the dirt. What is that? Yeah, man, these, and these big things. Could you imagine if that guy had to do it himself? But Jesus uses that image. He uses the very image of toiling of the soil of labor, of hard labor. He uses that image in relation to himself to talk about rest. If you understand that, you begin to see what the gospel is. You begin to understand the gospel when you begin to understand why he does things like that. And he says that if you're yoked to him, it's almost as if he's inverting Genesis 3. He's inverting that passage there of, of, uh, of laboring, of man's labor, of his painful labor, as if to invert it and say, you know, you yoke yourself to me, he does the work, and your burden, your part of it, your burden is light. And your burden is easy. And this prevents us, uh, this, um, this prepares us for chapter 12, because this is then what happens in chapter 12. In chapter 12, to set the scene, Actually, I'll just read it with you. You guys read with me. But it's eight verses. We'll just read it instead of me summarizing it. Sometimes when I summarize things, it goes longer than reading it anyways. But at the time Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath, at that time Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath, his disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat some heads of grain. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry? How he entered the house of God and they ate the sacred bread, which is not lawful for him or for those with him to eat, but only for the priest? Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath days, the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? But I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means... 
I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, what's happening here is uh, the, the, the Jews had a custom that they wouldn't you know, uh, pick from like the outskirts of the, of the farm. I mean, or like the stuff that would drop, they wouldn't pick it up so that poor people could come and poor people could eat from it. But, one of these, but, but recall, uh, recall our passage in Exodus 16 of the manna. God said that they weren't supposed to pick the manna up and eat it on the Sabbath. You're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What is going on? Because Jesus doesn't say that the law, you know, no law. Like, Jesus fulfills the law. Now, a titter, you know, or a tittle, or right, a yod, or he's saying, like, not any piece of the law he's come to, like, disobey, but he perfectly is obedient to all the law. So what happens here is that they're there, pick, they're there picking from this field, and I think that the image there, field, given what we just read, is intentional. It's making you want to think of Genesis 3. So there they are, and they're picking for their food. And the Pharisees come and say, you guys are breaking one of the laws. And then what happens there in the middle is basically there's a story of David going in there and eating the consecrated bread. Uh, the priests used to lay like these 12 loaves of bread. They would make 12 loaves of bread. You hear that? So the priests would make 12 loaves of bread to represent the 12 tribes of Israel every Sabbath. And you'd be like, wait a minute. Aren't they disobeying the Sabbath there? The priests are making bread. And then David goes in there and David eats that bread. And you, and, and you may be like, well, they must be breaking the law here. And Jesus is saying, no, they're not, they're not breaking the law right? When they, when they do that. And that's why I have this word priest in bold, especially given some of the blessings that we have. So he goes there and then he basically tells them something greater than the temple is here. That's a big deal. Remember, going all the way back to Genesis 2, we find temple language, dwelling. Like what the temple, the temple symbolizes in the, Old, in the Old Testament is the presence of God. So if Jesus comes along, all right, and the Sabbath was so important for the, for the Israelites, it was a sign of them leaving uh, Egypt. I mean, if you broke it, you got stoned. So imagine how angry the Pharisees are. And then Jesus goes and says something like this, something greater than the temple. In other words, something greater than the presence of God is here, and, and, you know, or the representation of the presence of God is here. Then you can imagine that they got real angry. But who's he talking about? Yeah, because he is, he is the temple. And then, and then he goes even further, and he basically says that he's Lord of the Sabbath. How can anybody say that they're Lord of the Sabbath, that they're Lord of rest? If, as we concluded earlier in the very beginning of the sermon, where did they find rest when they were in the garden? In God's presence. So now you have presence in the temple, God's presence with that garden language, and he goes and he now here says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. But Jesus still practiced the Sabbath. He still practiced it. But he was able to interpret its true meaning, especially in light of what we see with the bread. So we know now, well, basically what I want you guys to get out of this Matthew passage before we conclude with the, with the epistles is that something's happening here, something big. He's, he's not saying, you know, I'm not going to follow this Sabbath thing. No, he's still following the Sabbath the way that it was intended. But when he says that he's Lord of the Sabbath, something unique is happening, especially in light of priesthood. These disciples, they're priests too. That's one of the reasons why he's drawing this comparison. But it isn't until after Christ fulfills his mission, after he's followed the law perfectly, that we'll get to where we are in terms of the Sabbath. So we go, and this is basically, if I were like to summarize the gospel in this sermon, what we see in the gospel is we start with rest, and then we get to work. Right? Work. It's, Jesus starts with, you know, come to me, and I will give you rest. And then we find the, um, the disciples working in that field, picking, right? And now here we get, um, if, you can go, if you can go back to section 5. Section 5 is work and rest in the epistles. Um, so the epistles are basically letters. That's what it means. So these are the letters. Uh, and... We're going to look at a piece of Colossians, a piece of Romans, and a piece of Hebrews, because this is going to kind of really help us to understand Sabbath, and then answer our question about rest. So turn to Colossians 2, verse 16. 
This section is called uh, the Sabbath in Colossians. Colossians 2, verse 16, and it reads as follows. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink, or in the matter of a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. So he's talking here to this church. This church has false teachers. Those false teachers are going to pop up in, you know, all over the place in the epistles. But he's basically telling them, listen guys, you know, you don't, when, when people are, become Christians, they don't have to practice the Sabbath day. They don't have to get circumcised. They don't have to practice the Sabbath day. They don't have to in order you know, um, to enjoy the fruit of, of Christ's salvation. I mean, there's no work that they have to do. So he's saying here that you can't judge someone in terms of food and drink, and that makes you think of the dietary laws. So the Israelites in the Old Testament, remember all those laws that they're given? They can't eat shellfish. They can't wear clothing of uh, two different fabrics and stuff like that. He's putting the Sabbath in that same that same area. He's saying, you know, you're, you're not bound to it because salvation is not by works. It's by grace, specifically Christ. So this gives us a big, big hint when he's talking, when he's putting it in terms of don't let anyone judge you in regard you know, to the matter of the Sabbath day. And we get even more clarification in Romans chapter 14, verse 5. So the Sabbath in Romans, this is Romans chapter 14, verse 5. And it reads as follows. One person considers one day to be above another day. Someone else considers every day to be the same. Each one must be fully convinced in his own mind. This is occurring again in the discussion of dietary law. Uh, Paul's talking about the stronger and the weaker brother. And specifically, the weaker brother wants to continue in the dietary law. And he's weaker because he doesn't understand the grandeur of the gospel yet. He's still a believer. You know, he has a, a grasp of it, but he doesn't understand how big this is. And that happens a lot of times when you're a Christian. You don't understand you know, that, that you're saved by grace. You still think that there's some things you've got to do. So he, this is in that context, and he basically talks about a day. And if you're a Jew and you're talking about considering one day above another, the Sabbath immediately will come to your mind. So here we see Paul is talking about that you're not supposed to you know, judge someone for having one day above another or if someone has all these days. But that you're supposed to be convinced in your mind, right, to each person, to convince his mind right, right, this type of practice. But it isn't until Hebrews chapter 4 that I think we have the best uh, clarification. At least at this point, what we're told is you know, post-Christ, Christ was the Lord of the Sabbath. He fulfilled the law. That's why we don't have to practice a lot of these Israelite dietary laws. He came and he fulfilled all that for us. And the Sabbath was one of those things. Another, another response you could say is the Sabbath was a sign of the covenant with the Israelites. And we're not the Israelites, so it's not a sign of that covenant. But what we see here is that Paul is basically telling these churches, you know, you guys don't have to continue practicing the Sabbath. It's not required of you because it was a sign of the Israelites. And if you want to, that's fine. And if you do, someone else shouldn't come to you and say, you've got to stop doing that. Because if you're convinced of that, if it's your conviction, then so be it. But what, Hebrew, what Hebrews does is Hebrew really helps you grasp it, especially in terms of where we began and how this relates to work. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 10, we find the following. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. Interesting. So God works, and then he rests. And what he's saying here is he's like, the Sabbath is still open. Doesn't that sound a little confusing? Hebrews comes along, and Hebrews, Hebrews is saying, yes, the Sabbath is still open, and you can enter into the Sabbath. And then you probably would be reading this and like, what are you talking about? It just said in Colossians and Romans that I don't have to keep you know, the Sabbath day. I don't have to put one day above another. What are you talking about that the Sabbath rest remains for God's people? And now what we do to understand this is remember, who's the Lord of the Sabbath? It's Jesus. So who do we find rest in? And we saw that in our Matthew's passage, to be yoked to him. He does the labor. He carries the load. And we're saved because of it. But then I left something out in Genesis 3 that I think really helps you understand the Sabbath. 
like with a lot of things in the Bible, a lot of the, 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 the dietary law, a lot of these laws or these things that happen are like because they're signs. And what does a sign do? A sign points to a given reality. You see that all throughout John. It's pointing to something. And I think what the Sabbath is pointing towards is true rest. And what I didn't point out is that in Genesis 3, remember that refrain? The refrain is like a device that you use. You know, you may wrap it around something in poetry and you repeat it. And some of the refrains we had was let there be, let there be, let there be. That's why when God creates man and he says let us, you can say, oh, something big's happening. But at the end of each day of creation, what did God say? What was that? Okay, before, but, all right, that's true. What else? What else? What else? And there was evening, and there was morning. Why is that interesting? Because in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, it's not there. He closes each day of creation by saying, and there was evening, and there was morning. But when it comes to the day that God rests, it's not there. I think, and I, and I believe this is what Hebrews is, do, Hebrews is interpreting, is he's saying, yeah, the reason it's not there is because God rested. And he dwelled here, and this rest didn't stop. This is something we enter into. You know, it's still open to us. And that's one of the reasons why in those first three you know, rows, we have like a parallel location, inhabitant, boom, boom, boom. But then the seventh, God's rest is just open. So the Sabbath, that's what the Sabbath is pointing towards, is entering into God's rest. And how do you enter into God's rest? The passage that he's exegeting here, I think it's Psalm 95, but the passage that he's exegeting is basically a passage about how disobedient the Israelites were. In this passage, he just finished saying that in Hebrews, Jesus is greater than the angels, Jesus is greater than Moses, and now what he's doing here is basically saying, do you guys remember what happened to the... Israelites that were wandering. They kept disobeying, they kept disobeying, they kept disobeying. God gave them the Sabbath. And essentially what happened? They wandered for how many years? 40, number 40. And what did that mean? It prevented them from going into the what? Another, another image of rest. Another image of the garden. So seven days, the Sabbath, was an image towards God's rest. Them wandering in the 40 years, the promised land, is another image of God's rest, of entering into God's rest. The temple, the tabernacle, God's presence on the mountain and the smokescreen, all of this are pointing towards God's rest. And even the temple itself and the sacrifices of the temple, there's a reason why I don't come up here and you know, cut goats open and stuff like that, is because all of these things are pointing towards rest. And that rest is found in Christ. And what the gospel then becomes, right, is then the gospel is this rest in Christ. And then here's my secret. It's not going to be secret anymore. But here's, my, here's seriously my secret my, uh, of my work ethic. Is I find my rest in Christ. And now that sounds like something that wouldn't be practical, but it literally permeates every aspect of my existence. Every time I've had to do a paper, when I'm at work in a meeting, if I'm doing a presentation, if I'm building a website, or if I'm putting up video games at GameStop back in the day, every single thing I did I considered it as worship. Why? Well, first of all, work's not bad. Remember what we can do with our finances? We can give to the poor. We can help people. We can create art and music, food, delicious. You know, God's very good creation. We can enjoy it as he created it. We can subdue it. And then in that priestly language, we can cultivate and we can keep it. We can work it. And he gives us this responsibility to work it. And some people make the mistake to think that work, like that's, that's, that's it. You work hard so you can play hard. You work so you can find rest. So you can have a nice 401k, a nice savings account, and be secure. And the Bible's not saying, well, listen, what you really got to do is trust that God's going to give you all that. You got to just trust that God's going to give you that you know, bank account and he's going to give you that vacation home. No, that's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that you can have rest. And what happened with me is when I got rest, then I really got to work. That, that's the message of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, is that when you have rest, then you can work, and you can really work, because then what does work become? It becomes worship. 
And I'm saying work in a big sense. Everything you do can be worship. That's why when my boss's wife came in and told me that stuff, my response is, well, I do this because it's worship. And that's why I get so excited about it, because God has put me here not to just simply attend a service once a week and to sing some songs, but to go out into the world and to worship. So when people come to me and say, hey, Leonard, how do you do that? I say, no, 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 no. Let me tell you what the Lord has done. All right, let me tell you what the Lord has done, because he has given me the rest. He has given me you know, the energy, and I have, I have had trials, and he has given me the victory. But what we find here is that the gospel is that the rest comes, and from the rest comes the work. So that's why I, I entitled it 24-6. Because when I think about it, you know, you think, you know, you work these, you work 24 hours for six days and then you take a break. But the reason I didn't put that seven in there, and the thing that's interesting, the reason why I wanted to preach this at the start of the year, is that Sunday starts the week. Sunday. And then Saturday ends the week. And the reason why it's so beautiful, and, what, and the reason why the Christian, Christians just started worshiping on, on Sunday, why? Well, many reasons. One, and one of the reasons is that Jesus resurrected on, on Sunday, which is interesting because he was in the tomb on the Sabbath, resting. He was in the tomb on the Sabbath, resting. But then on Sunday, he came up. And then he appeared to all the disciples on Sunday. And then you have Paul asking for collections on Sunday. You have Pentecost on Sunday. And Sunday is even a, trouble, a troublesome word because sometimes people say Sunday, oh, that is the day of the sun. That was like a, a Roman thing. It must be pagan. We should be worshiping on Saturday. Well, you know, we have Filipinos here and we have Hispanics. Uh, what's our Spanish word for, for Saturday? Uh, and what's our Spanish word for Sunday? And what does Domingo mean? Dominus. Well, Dominus is from the Latin and it means the day Right? The, day, the day of our Lord. The Lord's day. Sunday is the Lord's day. And we start, we start the week with the Lord's day. Why? Because we start it reminding ourselves of the rest. The rest that we have in Christ and then the, week, and then the weeks that we can go out there and work in light of that rest to point towards that rest. Because we don't, we're, we're not, we don't have to you know, we don't, we don't earn salvation by works. And now I'm using wor the word works in an even bigger way. Because now some people don't only really think that if they work, 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 they get rest, like physical. But now there's a whole other layer that says works in the sense of no matter how much you do, you cannot earn salvation. No matter how many good works you do, you cannot earn salvation. That's why Luther, Luther's big thing in the Reformation was that you are not saved by your works. You're not saved by how many steps you climb up. You're not saved by how many times you go to confession. You're not saved by how many Ave Marias you say or anything like that. You're saved fully by the grace and mercy of Christ and His work, His cross beam, what He was positioned, the work that He performed and the victory that He secured on Sunday that He was resurrected. And that's the gospel because now we have a whole other level of rest. And we're in a very interesting time because then God gives us a further promise. He basically says, yes, now you, church, you're in the world because I want you to get to work. I want you to go out, as Matthew 28 says, I want you to go out into the world and to make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He wants us to go and to do. And not only just to tell people about Jesus with words, but to literally tell people about Jesus in everything we do, to tell people about the true presence of God, to tell people about where they can find rest whether that's creating an art piece or whether that's going to work at a business agency, everywhere you go, you have the opportunity to fulfill God's command in Genesis to cultivate and to keep the world and to preach the, the word. I mean, God created through that word. We find rest in that word and we find power in that word. So the last thing I'll mention is that in that passage of Hebrews, one of the things he's doing He's exegeting this psalm. And in the psalm, I mean, we said it during worship service. It was, it was said, this is the day that the Lord has made. And what he's saying there in the psalm, that he's exegeting, the psalm is basically saying, listen, guys, don't be like the Israelites. Don't harden your heart like they did, wanting to confide in their own work and their own labor. Saying, no, open yourself up. As Jesus said, come to me. Go to God. He will carry your burdens. Christ will carry your burdens. 
And the word that he uses is a word that was in another sermon I preached way back. And that was that word today. Which is the day, which is the word that we end in our meditation. Because he says today. He says in verse 7 of chapter 4. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And that gives you a picture of that God. That same, that same Christ who was there with the disciples in the field. The very bread of heaven. I mean, God's presence is with us now. And as Hebrews is saying, you know, the Sabbath rest, you can get that Sabbath rest today if you hear his voice. And it even concludes in that passage which is a discussion of Scripture. As if Scripture is the medium that we hear the voice of God when it's preached. And you're reminded that today, the Sunday, the Sunday that looks backwards at the resolution but forwards at the second coming, the second coming that will secure for us a new earth and a new heaven, that you can enter, that you can taste that rest today and that you can get to work today. If you can close your eyes with me. Father, we thank you for the Lord of the Sabbath. We thank you uh, for the temple, for the presence, for the bread of life, for the word, for the light of the world, for the sheep who was slain and sacrificed on our behalf, for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, for the Son, Lord, for the High Priest, for the Kingly King who has come, Lord, in His grandeur to yoke with us, Lord, that he may carry our burdens when we in turn should be giving him our greatest of worship. He comes to us, Lord, and he says to us, Today, come to me. Father, thank you, Lord, for your mercy and for your grace. Father, for any of the individuals who are here, if they hear the voice of God, Lord, if they need rest, Father. I'm not talking about a vacation day, Lord, but I'm talking about real rest. Rest, Lord, that permeates all of their work, that infuses their work, that empowers their work, and that gives their work meaning beyond, you know, playing or beyond any of these other things, these other ideas that we entered into the beginning. Lord, I pray that if they hear that voice, that today, Lord, they may enter into the Sabbath rest by coming to the Lord of the Sabbath. In your name we pray and we give you thanks. Amen. Please all rise.